0: This morning, I wanted us to take a look at, at a, a psalm that's been special to me over the course of my life. Many of the things that are in it, if you've been in my Sunday school classes or my counseling sessions or my community group or anywhere else I've taught, I often refer back to this psalm because of how special it is to me. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 1 with me. And before we get started in it, though I want to tell you about a story that I read recently about a company that wanted to improve its efficiency. So they hired a consultant who called a meeting of all the shop personnel. Now, it only makes sense for any company, whether you're profitable or losing money, from time to time to have an evaluation of how you're doing. So yes, companies do hire consultants, even when they're doing really well. We've got a good friend uh, of our families that this is what he does for a living. He's not the one that said what I'm getting ready to, to tell you, but, but he does this, and even... Big time, very profitable companies hire people to come and evaluate their efficiency in ways that they can improve. Matter of fact, this friend of ours, he had the big place that's closed today that we all love to go and eat their chicken sandwiches, right? And of course, we all know they're extremely profitable, and yet they hired a consultant to evaluate their business. So it's something that needs to be done. So this is a true story of a, of a guy that goes in, and, and he's got all the shop personnel gathered, and he's stressing the need to listen to the experts, People are experts for a reason, right? They've studied. They know we would be well to pay attention to them. And he said this. Imagine you're on the Titanic, and yeah, it's towards the end, and guess what? You're sinking. And you are blessed to be one of the ones that gets to climb into a lifeboat. And he asked this question. Which way would you row? Think about that. Then he asked, as you're evaluating which way we're going to row then he asked, what if you had the ship's navigator with you? All right. So think of the boat coming down. We know we're not going to row that way because we'll go right back into the boat. Right. Maybe we'll go this way or that way or that way. Which way would you row? Well, the expert here, the navigator, he's with us. Which way would you row now? Right. <clears throat> you would row the way the navigator said to row, wouldn't you? And then there's rumors, murmurings, not rumors, there's murmurings in the back of the room. And you hear people discussing what you just asked. And all of a sudden, one guy raises his hand and he, and he pipes up and he says, Well, I don't know if I'd follow the navigator or not. He's already hit one iceberg. <laughs> so think about that question again. Which way would you row? You're sinking. Where is your navigational wisdom going to come from? We all, we all, all of us need navigational wisdom. And where is it going to come from as we bob and weave our way through this fallen world? Where are we going to get our wisdom and how to navigate through it? We all need wisdom to make wise choices, right? Wise choices and to know how to best follow God. Have you ever thought about the fact that God does give us a choice? Isn't that incredible? I shared with the earlier service, there's a, a conference. Joel and I went to the, our first conference, counseling conference together back in 2004 in Lafayette, Indiana. And they kept throwing this phrase out there that you wake up every morning and there's just two choices on the shelf. Please God or, or please self. We get to pick, right? We get to pick. And if we make a self-focused choice, that's not going to be the wise choice, right? We need to choose God. And Psalm 1 gives us the wisdom that we need in order to make wise choices and follow God. Psalm 1 is often called the preamble to the entire book of Psalms, serving as an introduction to the whole thing, to all 150 uh, chapters. There aren't chapters. There's 150 Psalms. They're all in one book. What is said in Psalm 1 is relevant to the entire book of Psalms. Spurgeon viewed Psalm 1 this way. Listen to this, quote, This psalm may be regarded as the preface psalm, having in it a notification of the contents of the entire book. It is the psalmist's desire to teach us the way to blessedness and to warn us, of the sure destruction of sinners. This then is the matter of the first Psalm, which may be looked upon in some respects as the text upon which the whole of the Psalms make up a divine sermon. Spurgeon, then go back to the uh, in church history to the mid 300s, a guy named Basil of Caesarea penned the following regarding Psalm 1, quote, what the foundation is to a house, the keel to a ship, The heart to an animal, the same is this psalm to the whole psalter. Psalm 1 captures a fundamental teaching of both the Old and the New Testaments. In the Old Testament, God teaches his people that choices we make will determine both the direction... And the outcome of our lives. For example, he says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And then our Lord Jesus in the New Testament teaches us to choose the right way in life. In Matthew 17, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now, as I said a minute ago, and you know, well, I'm sure there are 150 Psalms totaling Two thousand four hundred and sixty-one verses, and the first four words of those two thousand four hundred and sixty-one verses are "Blessed is the man." Psalm one, verse one, first four words: "Blessed is the man." So we, here we see God addressing man's most basic question: How can I be blessed, happy in? This life. Or we could say it like this. How can I be happy in this life? Is it true? Think about this. Is it true that God really wants us to be happy? Absolutely. Right. God wants us to be happy and his happiness is not temporary. It is perpetual. The word translated blessed is plural in in the Hebrew. That that means that it's a perpetual blessing from the time we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. Forever we are happy. So how can I how can we be blessed, happy, truly happy people? So. Don't have time this morning to go around the room, but just think in your mind, what do you think of when you hear that word happy, right? We all have an idea in our minds of what that might, might mean. It's, of course, going to be answered by each of us individually based upon our personal life experiences. This blessedness, happiness, however, really depends on, you ready, who I am in Christ, not on what? Not on what's happening to me right now. It, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Listen, circumstances do not matter. You all right with that? Circumstances do not matter. This psalm, Psalm 1. It's called a wisdom psalm because we learn in it that blessedness, happiness results from our choice to follow God's direction in life. One of my favorite verses is Second Corinthians five, nine. Paul's talking about being dead or alive, but he, he says we make it uh, uh, whether whether at home, meaning in heaven I just blew it. Second, this isn't in my notes. Second Corinthians 5 and 9. Whether at home or whether absent or with the Lord, we make it our goal to be pleasing to him. Now, I like to use three different translations for that. You okay? Sometimes I need like a triple reminder. So... One translation says we make it our goal to be pleasing to him. Another says we make it our our aim to be pleasing to him. Another says we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. So I recall to myself, hey, Tim, make it your goal, your ambition, your aim today to be pleasing to God. That's the choice that I can make. I can have a happy, blessed day by choosing to make my goal today, not to fulfill my flesh, but to be pleasing to God. So it's a wisdom psalm. And because we learn that blessedness, this happiness results in which way I choose today to follow God's direction in my life. So in this psalm, the writer sets forth two directions in life, the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. And I was, uh, um, I, I wanted a little side note here of, of how the body of Christ works together on a Sunday morning like today of um, um, when Joel and I were talking earlier, I don't know how to do PowerPoint. Okay, so I said, Joel, you know, I could probably do this and, and I texted him my notes. So he did my PowerPoints for me. Right. And Chris Brackett did the scripture reading. Joel taught my Sunday school class. See how it all works together. The body of Christ woven together that we get the blessedness of experiencing with one another. So one of these directions is the right way that leads to blessedness, leads to happiness. And the other is the wrong way that leads to misery, the wrong way that leads to misery. So we can see these two directions and there's five points with us. I'm going to read all five now and then we'll see them as we go through them. First, what the righteous man does not do. Secondly, what the righteous man does Third, how the righteous man is blessed. Fourth, the dangerous place of the wicked, the ungodly. And lastly, the dangerous future of the ungodly. That is the scariest thing in the world to me. The dangerous future of the ungodly. So let's look at Psalm 1 and we'll read all six verses. Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So first, let's look at the way of the righteous and observe, observe what the righteous man does not do, what the righteous man does not do. And again, verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So here we learn that being blessed comes by choosing the righteous path, choosing to walk the righteous path. And interestingly, this determination is directly connected to other people. Right. Each line of this verse tells us to avoid the wrong kinds of interpersonal relationships. Young people, your friends can make a difference in your life. They can make a difference in your life. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three says, do not be deceived. Bad company, what? Corrupts, Corrupts good morals. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Bad company corrupts good morals. Your friends make a difference in your life. The psalmist introduces the doctrine of of the two directions in two ways from the very beginning. He wants us to understand what the way of the righteous, this blessed, happy person looks like. And in order to do that, we must know what he doesn't look like. And he shows us that in verse one. Now, some commentators are reluctant to see any special progression in, the, in these these terms here. But personally, I find it hard to believe that the phrases are not saying uh, what the way of the wicked, uh, that the way of the wicked is not downhill and that sinners go from bad to worse. I loved uh, a couple, I don't know, a month or two ago, I was talking to Chris Brackett about another passage of Scripture, and he said, you know, brother, if you just read it and take what it says, you know, how can you come out with anything else? Well, that's kind of how I approach this, right? It just perfectly seems to appear that, that this is the, the progression. If I do this, I'm next going to do this, and I'm next going to do that. It just makes sense that way. So um, in the description of this blessed man, this happy one, the man showing a consistent conduct, we have three negatives. Right. The three things this person doesn't do. And we also have one positive, one thing that he does do. And we'll see that in a minute in verse two. So the three negatives, they they form a progression. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see that progression? First, the guy's walking, walking among the wicked. Then he's slowing down a little bit. Now he's standing there in the way of sinners, gets a little more comfortable, gets a little more entrenched, and then finally he's sitting, and guess what? Now he is at home with scoffers. So the progression is from a casual acquaintance with sin to an involvement with sin to a complete entrapment by Sin. And that's how sin works, right? You know it in your life. I know it in mine. The devil doesn't want just a little bit of us. He wants all of us. Sin wants to have mastery over us. And it starts with just walking among the wicked. You may think, oh, you know, ah, Tim, you're out of your mind. That won't happen to me. I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough in my faith. I had an awesome quiet time this morning. I, I can go to this party. I and nothing's going to happen to me. I can, I can sit there and have a couple of drinks. Nothing's going to happen to me. Just just one hit off the joint. You know, I no big deal. One little line. Nothing's going to happen. I I can watch those movies. They won't have any influence over my life. Okay, but walking turns into standing. Standing turns into sitting. And it's the the devil that wants us to say, now you're going to sit. And how comfortable I am. Surely there's nothing wrong with such a little sin. It's such an insignificant little thing after all. No big compromise. After all, you know what? There's so many others out there doing far worse than me. Well, that's what we find ourselves doing, isn't it? Comparing ourselves to other people all the time. As many of you know, my counseling career has been mainly in the life of people struggling with addictions. And I'm telling you, this is glaring in the life of a. Well, all I was was an alcoholic, as if that's not bad. Somehow. Right. You know, well, you know, I, I've only been snorting this cocaine. At least I don't shoot it up like that guy does, you know, just constantly. You know, that's that's where the devil wants us not looking at ourselves, but comparing ourselves to others instead of comparing ourselves to the one that really matters. Right. To the Lord Jesus Christ. All the devil wants us to do is just to take that first little tiny baby step. No big leap, just a little baby step, right? He's never going to come to you and say, you know what? Today's the day that you're gonna wake up and you're gonna have an affair with that girl at work and you're gonna commit adultery against your wife. He doesn't do it that way. No, he just starts breaking down the little walls, the little fences. And, and you know what? You deserve, Tim, to be happy today. You deserve that. You know that, that, that you can go ahead with that, right? You know what? Go ahead and linger in that conversation a little bit longer. It's okay to look at that website. That's not hardcore pornography. It, it's not. It, it's just partial nudity. That, it's no big deal, right? And you just go and you start walking and eventually you're standing and then you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. This is not the man that God approves of. He is not on the path of righteousness. He is not displaying the consistent conduct of the righteous man. But, The blessed man, the happy man, does not walk in this way. He doesn't stand there and he doesn't sit there. So he could say it like this. He's not devoted to the ways of the world. Right? Not devoted to the world. Now that we've seen what the righteous man does not do, let's look at what the righteous man does do. Here's the one thing that marks out the righteous, blessed, happy man, this good man, this sort of person we ought to be. Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now contrast these two points here. The first point, he doesn't delight in the wicked ways, the wicked path, and the wicked scoffing. But instead, we're told, he delights in the law of the Lord, which raises a question. Can you and I study the law of the Lord? Can you and I delight in the law of the Lord and still live in this world? Can I study the law of the Lord and be around sinners all day long at work and out in my community? Can I study the law of God and be around scoffers? Of course I can. We are every day, are we not? We can be in this world and still be devoted to God. We live in this world, but we're not of this world. Our citizenship, Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, is where? It's in heaven. It's not here. Right. But we all know because we're all sitting here right now. or I'm standing. Y'all are sitting, you know, that we are here. We're here in this world. But the Lord has equipped us. Right. It's an amazing thing, an amazing thing to think of in Christ. We can say we have peace with all men, even the unruly who deny God. Yet at the same time, we pull ourselves away from the devotions of this world. We're not entertained by worldly things. The blessed man pulls his affections away from worldly things and sets them on heavenly things. He does what Paul says in Colossians 3.20. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Set your mind on the things that are above Right. Think about that for a minute. What could that possibly mean? Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong here. We're foreigners. We're aliens, sojourners, Peter tells us. This is not our home. Now, that that's hard, though, isn't it? When you're out in the world and you see this, that, and the other, set your mind on the things above. Don't be sucked in by those things. Set your mind on the things above. I live with a woman, my wife, that... Uh, Reminds me of that often, you know, my mind will wander and I'll want this, that or the other, you know, set your mind on the things above, get off of these earthly things. I've shared what I'm getting ready to say a thousand times, something that floored me when I was in the military, you could be stationed on the beach in Hawaii, right? I mean, the most beautiful, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures, you know, the most beautiful place on earth. Oh look at it. You know, you're looking this way, you got this massive Pacific Ocean. You turn around that way and you got the mountains. Oh, both best of both worlds, right right there. And and you're stationed there. Oh my gosh, we got three years here. I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to get back to Woodstock. Right? That's that's why aren't we that way with heaven? You know, here we are wanting the stuff here. And God says, no, your real home is there. You know, longing for that. Set your mind on the things that above. And and this blessed person sets his affections into the law of the Lord. And the text tells us which he meditates on. He is consumed by pursuing a knowledge of God. Consumed by understanding God's mind, God's will, God's heart in all circumstances. Consumed on seeing life through God's perspective. Consumed by seeing the difficulties that we face in life from God's perspective, consumed by seeing the joys that we face in life from God's perspective. That is the blessed man. This person has constant delight. Delight means to take pleasure in or find enjoyment in something. Constant delight, pleasure, joy in the Lord, right? It speaks of a desire to to feel great favor towards something. To take pleasure or find enjoyment in what? The things of the world? No, in his law, God's law. And what is meant here by the word law, the word is is Torah in in the Hebrew, which means to instruct, right? The Torah refers to the, the, the five books of Moses in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the instruction books, right? But the law of the Lord here describes God's entire word, not just the Ten Commandments or or just the Pentateuch. Uh, Commentator Derek Kidner says this, uh, quote, this word law basically means direction or instruction. It can be confined to a single command or can extend as here to Scripture as a whole. The whole thing. What a blessing you and I have right? When the psalmist wrote that, they didn't have the New Testament, what you and I have. We get to delight in that as well, right? And the psalmist tells us this blessed man delights in, in, not just on, but in, picturing a more intimate involvement with the Word of God. A couple of years ago, I couldn't, Tell you, well, I used to know, but I forgot what a preposition is, right? And what significance a preposition can have in a passage of Scripture is, is just profound, right? And by the use of the preposition in here, we get the picture of not just a surface scanning. It's an immersing oneself in the pure milk of God's Word, I remember the English course I took at at, uh, Expositor Seminary. The the teacher talked about prepositions or anything that happens in or around a rabbit's hole. You know, and I like to think of this, you know, in. You are in the hole. You are in God's Word. You are at home there. That's the picture we get there. Immersing oneself in the pure milk of the Word. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the spirit pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Well, in preparing to preach a text, Charles Spurgeon said this. Listen to how Spurgeon got ready to preach a text. He said, quote, get saturated with the gospel. I always find that I can preach best when I can manage to lie a soak in my text. I like to get a text. Find out its meanings and bearings and so on. And then after I have bathed in it, I delight to lie down in it and let it soak into me. That's immersing yourself in the text, isn't it? Think about taking a hot bath in the word of God. Soaking, letting it reach down into the, you don't need the, what's the stuff you put in there when you got a sore? The Epsom salt. You don't need that. The Holy Spirit's in you. It can soak into you, but you do have to open it and get in it, right? When you truly delight in the word, you will have a desire to spend time in it and to meditate on it. Someone has written, the Bible is bread for daily use, not cake for a special occasion. The blessed person that constantly delights on God's law, he meditates on it day and night, which reminds me of Joshua 1.8, which says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous then you will have success day and night means it is our continual practice not our occasional practice our continual practice and any time is a good time to meditate on god's word right A good practice would be to begin and end each day by meditating on the word of God for a good beginning and a good ending. And I would say as well for a good middle of the day. Right. If you've meditated on it, if you've read it in the morning and you've had a quality, quiet time with the Lord, as Brian taught last week, you know, you're you're reading your Bible and you're spending time. You've picked a portion of what you read. You've meditated on it. Then in the middle of the day, when the guy on the highway cuts you off, what's coming up? The Word of God that you have soaked in and meditated on, not the foulness of our natural hearts, right? But such practice takes Spirit, Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit-enabled discipline. But, oh, the benefits. Amen? Oh, the benefits. Paul calls on Timothy and all believers in 1 Timothy 4, 7, to train yourselves for godliness, This is a present imperative that Paul's using there, which calls for this to be our lifestyle and would include the discipline of meditation. You know, today that word meditation, it can mean lots of things to lots of different people. For example, well, let me preface. I'm not, well, for example, I know that yoga is very popular and part of yoga is meditation. I did not say go to yoga and meditate. Okay, I'm just using this as an example. Yoga meditation is not, 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 not the type of meditation that God is talking about. Yoga meditation, which typically you do after you've done the yoga sequence, is the final step to the yoga. They tell me I read online. (laughs) Um, One yoga website explains it this way. First, you exercise the body. And then you let go to help relax and focus the mind. They say, "quote This meditative practice helps stabilize your body post exercise and provide mental clarity as well as physical, emotional, and spiritual energy." My question would be, well, what kind of spiritual energy, right? And then there's this. You got to name the. Lo- I mean, you got to love the name of this website: Mindful, Healthy Mind, Healthy Life. Quote, how do you learn to meditate? In, in mindfulness meditation, we're learning how to pay attention to the breath as it goes in and out. You focus now, Tim? Really? And then it goes on and says, and notice when the mind wanders from the task. Oh, no, I'm not thinking about it. I'm going to die. I'm not breathing. This practice of returning to the breath, they tell us, builds the muscles of attention and mindfulness, quote, continued. When we pay attention to our breath, we are learning how to return to and remain in the present moment to anchor ourselves in the here and the now on purpose without judgment, end quote. Wow. Right. I typed in the word meditation to Google hit return, got 454 million results in 1.40 seconds. 454 million in 1.40 seconds. Is that what the psalmist is talking about when he writes, blesses the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night? Of course it's not, right? The Hebrew word here means to muse. That's not something we do much, does it? You know, Kit might say to me, hey, Tim, did you muse over that paragraph you just read or did you just read it? Right. Did you muse? It's not a word we use much. Webster says this to muse is to become absorbed in thought, especially to think about something carefully and thoroughly. Instead, what do we like to do instead of musing? We like to be amused. Right. And you know what happens in the English language when you put the A in front of the word. Right. So put A in front of muse, amuse. It negates the musing. Right. We don't think. Instead, we are amusing ourselves. Well, a great I'm a word picture kind of guy. I love to see things and and filter them through and and kind of help my simple mind understand. Well, there's a place we go by. On the way home, if we go a certain way, um, where we pass a cow pasture. And you know what? If we went by there when we leave today, um, say 1 o'clock, and cows get up, you know, when it's light out. So they've been up for a long period of time. We drive by there around 1 o'clock this afternoon. I look over there. I I don't know why this is. I cannot not look at animals, you know squirrel, you know, or possum or whatever. Well, possum would have to be at night, but I still see them, you know. My wife gets, I see caterpillars in the road. Is that weird? I'll say, kid, look at that caterpillar. What are you talking about? I can't not look at cows when I drive by. And I'm telling you, at 1 o'clock this afternoon, if we drive by that cow pasture, every one of them are going to be, well, depending on what kind of day, but even if they're laying down, their heads are going to be up. Either that or they're standing and their heads are up and they are all they are all doing what? They're all doing something. They're all chewing. Right. They haven't put their heads to the ground for hours and they're standing there chewing. What is going on? First question pops into my mind. What in the world are they chewing? Well, it's called the cud. Right. Well, what's the cud? Cow has four compartments in his stomach. Chews and chews and chews. When he wakes up, fills all four compartments up. And then when they're all full, he stands there the rest of the day and chews them. He regurgitates one of those compartments, chews on it, gets it all nice and chewed up, swallows it, brings up more from another compartment. He's meditating on the cud. That's what we do with God's word. We we chew on it in our time with the Lord. We swallow it we bring it back up we think about it deeply we muse on it some more that's what we're doing right that's what we should be doing when we open God's word to meditate and this practice is what happens when somebody is blessed when they're happy that's the result of doing that so we've seen what the righteous man doesn't do we've seen what the righteous man does now thirdly How the righteous man is blessed. Verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The psalmist uses the image of a fruitful tree here to show the result of those who are blessed. The fruitful tree describes the man who delights in the law of God and the man who's meditating and drawing his nourishment from The law of God from the Word of God, just as a tree draws its nourishment from the abundantly flowing streams, right? In Israel, we were blessed in 2017 to go on a trip to Israel. And while we were there, I can't remember the name of the road, um, but we came out of the place where um, Jesus was baptized at the Jordan, took a left on that main highway, whatever it's called. And I don't know, we rode for a good bit and We came upon a place. I'm convinced that these tour drivers and uh, tour guides have contracts with places along the way. You know, I'll bring this busload of Americans in here. They'll spend your money. Give me a kickback. So we pulled into this place. It was a makeup shop. And all the ladies on the bus went, "Woo! look at there, a makeup shop. Oh, it's made from the dead Sea stuff over there. It's so good for your skin. And all the guys on the bus, we've whip out our cell phones and we're Googling the name of the place, you know, to find out if we can get it cheaper on Amazon than they're selling it in there. And guess what? A lot cheaper on Amazon. You don't have to worry about hauling it home with you either. Right? So, so but we pull in there and Darby and I are sitting on the bus and, and, and we looked out the window and, and I remember having this discussion with Darby and there's this, this shrub there that is just gnarly. It's dried up nasty looking thing. And they started looking around and they're all like that. And we looked over to the left and to the left, we knew the Dead Sea was over there. We were at a spot right before that that you can kind of see it way over there. But all of the soil in that area, it's desert and all the soil there was stained white from the salt of the Dead Sea, right? And, And this poor bush was just withered up because of the salt soil. And it reminded Darby and I had a discussion about Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse six in particular says he, meaning this this withered up man that is not drawing nourishment from the word of God. He's like a shrub in the desert. There he was right out the window of the bus and he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land. Ooh, who wants to live there, right? We pulled out of there and I did I did Google map this and I can't remember what it told me. I didn't write it down, but it wasn't far. Twelve, 15 minutes max. We pulled out of there, took a ride. Twelve, 15 minutes max. We pull in another parking lot, our next site to see a place called Engedi. Ah, I remember that. And there in the desert was a stream. There were trees in the desert. They weren't gnarly, salt destroyed, barren bushes. They were trees. There were deer there. We saw deer going up the slopes, just like the scripture says. Isn't that awesome? An oasis in the desert, right? And that reminded us of Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8, which says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots into the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Listen, the land of your life might be parched right now. It might be dry. It might be barren. The winds might be blowing hot against you. But if your roots are planted by the streams of God's word so that they can sink down and draw nourishment, you will prosper, you will yield fruit, You will be blessed. You will be happy. That's the godly man, right? The person God approves of and is blessed, the happy person. No matter what, no matter what this life brings, you will be blessed. Now, please understand, this does not, capital N-O-T, does not mean that there won't be troubles in your life. What it means is that God has provided a way in and through Jesus Christ for us to have perfect peace and joy in Christ. Right. Verse three ends by telling us this person is blessed and will prosper. Look at it, it says in all that he does, he prospers. This, of course, is not talking about uh, the, the um, prosperity gospel of the word faith movement. That's not what we're talking about here. This means that he will prosper in the sense that no matter what comes against our lives, we find strength for the day and hope in the midst of life's hardest difficulties. And then we will bring forth godly fruit in good times and bad times. Why? How can that be? Why? Because he, we are planted deep in the good soil and our roots reach to the water of the word of God. Finding constant nourishment there, then we can face whatever life throws at us. Our nourishment comes from the word of God. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 8, 3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Our souls are designed to be nourished by God's precious and very great promises, 2 Peter 1. But these promises, we got to understand, are not mere human words, right? They're living and active, proceeding directly from the living word of Jesus Christ. He is the word of God and all the promises of God God find their yes in him. What could possibly give more hope to our sinful souls than Jesus's promises to forgive all of our sins? What could give more hope than that? Right. To remove all of the Father's judgment and wrath against us and to always be with us. Yes, before Christ, God's judgment and wrath is against us. Please understand that. Nobody's walking around in this world without the judgment and wrath of God being upon them. But we know that in Christ, that has been satisfied not on our Doing by our doing, but by Christ. And it gives us eternal life in in God's presence with full joy and pleasures forevermore. Now, the psalmist gives us a striking contrast in verse 4. Here we see the dangerous place of the ungodly. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is a striking contrast between the righteous and the wicked. You know, wicked is an adjective meaning unrighteous, unjust, evil person, a wrong person, a wicked, guilty, criminal, transgressor. And it, this word is often described, describes unbelievers who hate God and who are habitually hostile towards him. Unlike the righteous man that has a consistent conduct, the wicked or the ungodly can conduct their conduct their lives as if God didn't exist and with no regard for him whatsoever. Note that it, it takes two verses to describe the secret of the godly life, but only takes two words to describe the life of the ungodly. Not so. How about that, right? The English rendering of the Greek Septuagint is even stronger. It says, not so. The ungodly, not so. Right. They're led by the counsel of the wicked in the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers and not what they're not blessed. They're not blessed. Not like trees firmly planted, not bearing fruit in season, not remaining green in the times of drought, not prospering in all that they do. Instead, instead the psalmist says the wicked, they're like chaff. Now, this, of course, is a picture of the threshing floor at the times of grain harvest. Chris told us in Psalm 65, it was a time of harvest. This is where we're at. The threshing floors of Palestine are on on the hills that catch the best breezes, and the grain's brought to them, and, and it's threshed over by, crushed by animals or threshing instruments that are drawn, pulled over, and then pitched high into the air, and we know the wind blows the useless chaff away. The heavier stuff, the stuff we're all after, it comes down to the threshing floor, and it's collected for good use. The chaff is, after it's picked up, it's scattered or burned, and it's what the psalmist says those who live wickedly are like. They're scattered, and they're burned. They're, they're like worthless chaff, good for nothing but the fire, nothing but the fire. This pictures the futile, empty, worthless life of a godless person. If only, right, if only those who are running away from God could see this. But they can't because they won't listen to God. And the world is shouting the exact opposite of what the Bible is teaching us. The world says to be a Christian is foolish. They say Christians never have any fun or accomplish anything. If you want to amount to something and enjoy yourself, get on the fast track of sin, Reach out for whatever you want and take it. That is what the world teaches, right? But it's all a lie. It is all a lie, which is exactly what Paul calls it in Romans chapter one, where he analyzes this fast downward spiral of life. Romans one verse 25 says, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You remember back in, in Genesis in Eden, the devil told Eve what? That if you, if you disobey God and eat the fruit, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. But she didn't become like God, did she? She became like Satan. Her eyes were not open. Matter of fact, they had been open before that. Now she and her husband became completely blind to spiritual realities. Don't believe the devil's lie. Don't follow the world when it tries to draw you from righteous living by charming falsehoods. Well, next we see the dangerous future of the ungodly in verse five. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Here, the psalmist amplifies what he just stated about their being driven away by the wind. The wicked like chaff, they don't have the weight They don't have the weight to resist God's winds of judgment. And so they're blown away and unable to stand in the judgment. Now, listen, will not stand in the judgment does not mean that they will be absent from judgment. Far from it. What it means is they will not be able to endure the judgment and will have no adequate defense. I was reading in a book this week uh, talking about God's judgment And only a just judge would judge, right? And and that's what we want. But do you know that every sin we commit, or not not, not those of us in Christ, because our debt has been paid. Every sin an unbeliever commits adds another log to the fire. It gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter with every sin. And guess what? it is never ever quenched as i said at the beginning happiness is perpetual the judgment of god in the hell in the fire of hell is never quenched it is perpetual as well right when when, when the wicked are brought before the judgment bar of god there is no retort to god's just condemnation for their ungodliness and that my friends to me is a very scary horrifying place right and the psalmist concludes verse six showing us what lies ahead at the end of each way verse six for the lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish so what we have is two final ends the lord knows the way of the righteous the lord knows the way of the wicked and verse 6 distinguishes between the final end of the righteous and the final end of the wicked, saying, but the way of the wicked will perish. The verse describes the destiny of these two groups of people. Wisest man to ever live, King Solomon wrote Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death. If you're like me and you need to hear things twice to get it, a page and a half later, Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. That is the way of the wicked. But the way of the righteous is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, who described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And then he promised us that he would keep all of those who follow him forever, right? Forever. So the question before all of us each day including today, is which way are you going to go? You're going to walk on the path of the godly and be blessed or walk on the path of the ungodly and perish. It's up to you. It's up to you. Who are you going to follow? Let's pray. Father, in this text we've looked at this morning, we see two portraits, the portrait of the righteous person, the blessed, happy person, and the portrait of the wicked person. And as we survey our lives, we must confess to you that many times we find ourselves walking in the way of the wicked man, walking in the way of the ungodly. We confess to you this morning, Lord, that at times we've been unfaithful to our covenant with you and our covenant with one another. We, we've even worshiped other gods, things like money power, greed, self, self self-convenience. We've served our own self-interest instead of serving you and your people. We've not loved our neighbor as you've commanded, nor have we rightly loved you. Forgive us, Lord, for those things and bring us back into fullness, the fullness of your covenant with you and with one another. And forgive us for the many times we've left you and chosen to satisfy those selfish desires. For the times that we've hurt the members of our family by refusing to do our share around the home. For refusing to love one another. Forgive us for the times when we're unkind and impatient towards others, particularly in our own households. For the times that we're too weak to stand up for what is right and that we've allowed others to suffer because of our cowardice. Forgive us for the times that we refuse to forgive others and forgive us for the many, many times that we choose to live lives according to our own wills instead of according to your precious word. We, we've, 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 you've told us, Lord God, that in this passage this morning that we will be blessed, happy, satisfied if we'll follow your ways rather than the ways of the wicked. So we thank you, Lord, for meeting us where we are. None of us automatically starts out being righteous. We start out being wicked sinners. And we do eventually enter by the straight gate upon the narrow road that leads to life. If we do, Lord, it is only by your goodness, your grace alone that brings us there. And yet, Lord, we fall short, even when we contemplate beauties like that. We fall short of loving you as we should. Even the best of our love is but a faint glimmer of what it ought to be. We stand this morning, Lord, in desperate need of daily grace and forgiveness. And we confess that apart from your mercy to us, we would be utterly without hope. But when we were lost, you found us. You called us and drew us to Christ Jesus yourself. You brought us out of the horrible pit out of the miry clay, and you, Lord, set our feet upon a rock, upon the rock of Jesus Christ. So help us to realize and bear in mind that our final salvation, the eternal glory of heaven, is nearer to us than when we first believed. The day will soon dawn when we enter the glory of your presence. So empower us unto holiness as we wait, Lord, as we seek to walk in a way that is consistent with your wonderful love and your perfect righteousness. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.